Hello, I'm Ben Eshmade and welcome to another edition of the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields podcast. In this very special episode, we eavesdrop on a conversation between Lady Mariner and Sir David Attenborough, speaking about the history, performances and recordings of the Academy and its founder, Sir Neville Mariner. Molly Mariner had a vital role in supporting and nurturing the orchestra, who she describes as a family, through its early years and Sir David became a good friend of the Mariners after meeting Sir Neville on a tour to Japan in the 1960s. Since the orchestra's first performance at its namesake church in 1959, the name and the sound of the Academy of St Martin in the Fields has become known and loved by classical audiences throughout the world, and its partnership with Sir Neville Mariner is the most recorded of any orchestra and conductor. But it began simply as a group of friends, regularly gathering to rehearse in Sir Neville and Molly's front room in South Kensington. We joined Molly and Sir David in the very same room to hear some of their memories. So how did it all begin, actually? Who had the, who had the idea and why? Simon Stretfield and Michael Bowie, who were two viola players in the LSO where Neville played. And they said to Neville, we'd like to do something a bit different as well for fun. What about a string quartet? And Neville said, no, done that. Then they said, well, string trio, no, done that. He said, and then he, he Neville said, I think, what about a chamber orchestra? Just strings. Why don't we do that? So they said, well, think about it. How many players do we need? And he said, well, we could get away with four first violins, two second violins, two violas, two cellos, and a double bass. And was he, was he a, a freelancing player at the time? Well, the LSO was not a contract orchestra, so they were, in a way, freelance players. But he was, his bread and butter was the London Symphony. But it was the LSO? It was. That was 57 when they talked about it. And they then thought of other players who'd been students with or they liked to work with. And what was the decision taken about repertoire? Not till they met. And Mike Bowie, who was a very good musicologist, he had ideas about these Italian, what they ended up calling ice cream wallets. <laughs> well, Neville, of course, was very reverent in these yeah. matters. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so they, were, they dug up, he dug up this music. We had to copy it out by hand. We borrowed quite a bit from the BBC, who were very kind in those days. And, of course, there was no photocopying. And they met as, I think there were five of them to begin with, sort of front desks. And they met here and talked about it. And then it grew. They then invited the people they liked. It was, from the beginning, a recording group, really. it, No, they worked for a whole year without doing a concert or anything, any pub, anything in public. Because? They enjoyed playing together. So it was frustration from the standard orchestral repertoire? Yes, and from playing in an orchestra. And so where did they play? In Nowhere. They didn't do a concert for over a year. Where did they... When they were just getting together, what well, did they play? What happened was they then realised they had to have a keyboard player because all those old Monteverdi and people you don't know and Albanoni and Corelli, people all had keyboards. So one of them knew Jack Churchill and Jack was the organist at St Martin's. That's where that began. And he did a lot of frilly bits and rather thought it was fun. 
and different from playing the organ in church. So after a year, it was Jack who came to them and said, look, I can get some money from the Pilgrim Trust. They would like to have some more music in the church. They did have those student recitals, but they'd like to have some professional concerts. So what about it, chaps? So they thought that was a good idea. And I found a book not long ago, which the fees were five pounds a concert. There were no fee for rehearsal. But the double bass player got five pounds for moving his double bass. <laughs> and that's what they played for. And it was paid for by the, through the church. The first concert was in November, but never to be forgotten because the morning rehearsal in the church the fog started to come. And so they all went home at lunchtime. At the double bass at that time was actually lived in Watford. Oh, gosh. And he went home to Watford, and about five o'clock he rang me up and he said, I'm not going to make it. The fog is so thick, the transport stopped. I can't see in the car. You're going to have to find another player. So I had to find another double bass player who just sight-read his way through, and he was so much better... We always had John Gray after that. Really? Yeah. It, that lasted a whole year. And then there came a lady called Mrs. Louise Dyer. Now, Mrs. Dyer was Australian, and Mrs. Dyer's father had been extremely rich. And she had bought a French recording company called Oiseau Lear, which also published music. And she heard about the Academy playing the kind of music she liked. So she came to see us and she said, would we like to make a record? And the first record was made in the church and had to be made at 3 a.m. because of the traffic, because otherwise you can hear the buses going round. So they, they did the first record at 3 a.m. They got a whole record in in three hours and Mrs. Dyer paid them, I remember, in cash out of a sort of leather satchel. And that was the first recording. And that had a picture of St Martin's on the cover? It had the picture of St Martin's on the cover. And then the second cover, when she wanted another record, Neville said, think of something more exciting. That's boring. What can we do? And when I had worked, I had known a very good photographer called Norman Parkinson. <laughs> and he was rather formidable, but I rang him up and I said, would you consider making a record sleeve. And he said, well, in fact, you can't afford me. You couldn't possibly pay my fee, so I'll do it for nothing if you'll let me experiment. So he did. He, he went to the church and he photographed in Trafalgar Square. He then came when they were rehearsing and photographed that, and he superimposed one on top of the other. It's not brilliant, 
but it is an original Norman Parkinson. Did you go on rehearsing or in... in yes, oh yes, they rehearsed like crazy. But you didn't rehearse anywhere else? Well, there's no money, so we always rehearsed here. Oh, well, here, that's what I'm asking Yes, about. oh yes, always here. Yeah, well, we could only rehearse in the church just before the concert. But, but here was, during the rest of the time they came here, I made two kinds of cake. I can only make two kinds of cake. <laughs> chocolate cake and a fruit cake and endless cups of tea and coffee and that people would come and go how long they could stay when they had to be busy or something. There were no set rules about it. When I knew Neville, when I met Neville, uh, he was playing with the LSO. Yeah. I decided I was going to leave the BBC to go and make and do a degree in anthropology, as it happened, which was a non-starter, but I did. I decided, and I became a freelance, and I hoped to pay for myself with, free, with just occasional engagements. And I, I walked into um, the BBC club one day, and the head of documentaries, a man called Hugh Weldon, suddenly said, Diebach, he being a Welshman, do you want to go to Japan? I said, yes, of course. Uh, of course I want to go to Japan. Uh, would you like to make a f film by an orchestra? Yes, I could. He said, well, you could do both. You'll have to leave next week. And I said, why? And he said, well, the manager of the London Symphony Orchestra, who is very keen on the accounts, and has discovered that he's got four seats available, vacant, and it really hurts him to think they're not used. So we've come to a deal that if he gives you your tickets to go, would you direct a film about the London Symphony Orchestra's tour of Japan, which was the very first time a full-blown London a Western orchestra uh, went to Japan. And of course I said fine, and we left sort of three days later. Well, I had no time to think about what we were going to do until I literally got on the plane, which was a big jumbo jet, or no, no, a big jet anyway, uh, and it was full of all the orchestral players. And I'd never travelled with an orchestra before, and I had no idea what, what I was going to do. And I walked down the, the, the aisle, and there were all these people who I've always sort of worshipped, you know, as people in touch with eternity, as, as great musicians. And there they all were, playing cards and drinking and one thing. That's like normal human beings. And they said things like, oh, who are you? And what are you doing? And I'm making a program about you, the orchestra. Oh, you're just going to want conductors blowing their tops and things, aren't you? I said, certainly not. Of course I'm not going to do that. He said, what's your idea? I had no idea really what it was. But, and then I thought, before we got there, I thought I'm going to have to focus on some of the distinguished players who were taking the leaders of the sections and so on. And of course, Neville was, was there. I mean, she was the obvious person. And I picked uh, the oboe player, uh, who was... He was... Roger Lord. Roger Lord, yeah, indeed. And Gervais. And Gervais de Pire. Uh, and I would, I would film them talking to their, as it were, equivalents in the Japanese orchestras, and including uh, masterclasses, which they gave and which never came. And that was the film. And it was, it was, it wasn't a great film, but it was a pioneering film in that nobody had filmed orchestral rehearsals before in that way. And there was Dorati, uh, and there was Monteur, and there was Colin Davis, 
um, but it was Durati which in the end we, we featured. It set a pattern. I mean, orchestral rehearsals then became, could be seen to be rather interesting in discussions. Now, I remember some quite abstruse uh, Durati instructions, which made absolutely no sense to me at all. And I don't think they did to the orchestra, really, because his grasp of English wasn't as, as, as uh, strong as all that. But we staggered through it. And it was, wasn't until on the return journey that I discovered that Neville was actually, because he was discussing with Roger Lord and with various other people about rehearsals. And then he revealed that he had the small group which was just recording. And that was how I first heard of the Academy. And then you came to supper. You probably heard more then. Yes. Well, indeed, we, we became friends, firm friends, really. And, uh, and, I, and I knew him and you ever since, really. Very lucky. Which is a long time. It's yeah. about nearly 50 years, David. 62 years since I was married, so it's at least 50 years. We've spent a, a lot of time together, um, and I, I never was always so kind, and you were so kind that you tolerated the things that I was interested in during holidays. But what did Neville really enjoy uh, at home? I mean, he enjoyed sport, of course. Cricket, cricket. It, particularly cricket. And that, so we had this academy team that used to come down to the country and play the village team. And he was president of the village team and he was captain of the academy, so he always won. <laughs> but if I may say so, I always thought that it was absolutely absurd to be playing cricket if you were a string player. Oh, I was, it was so dangerous. Van Ralph, I remember, a wonderful fiddle player, he, a ball hit the top of his finger and it didn't mend. He had to lose chamber music concerts. He was leader of a string quartet and he lost the whole series. It was a dangerous game, but they still play it. We had a match this summer. But the other thing he loved was building. And you saw that through the years. Addition at this end of the house, then at the other end of the house. Let's build a barn to put the grandsons in. But he had a great interest in craftsmanship. One of the things that really pleased him was furniture, yeah. well-made furniture. Yeah. Well, you see, his father was a carpenter, so he did understand what it took to make these things. He loved clocks too, didn't he? He loved clocks, but he was never very good with them. What does that mean? It meant that we quite often had to go to the clock mender. Why, because you wound it up wrong? Yes. <laughs> he would fiddle, and, you know, they were very expensive clocks, so they were very delicate clocks. And he did, he, he had a lot of clocks. And I have to say, I haven't wound them since he died. I'm frightened. Mm. But you introduced us to pottery. Yes. And you remember at first, Neville wouldn't come with us. Yes. He's, because he was colorblind. And he couldn't see what was the point of these muddy things. And then one time he did come with us, and it was to Richard Batterham. Mm. And he was looking round... David's wife, Jane, and I were busy buying casseroles and mugs and things. And suddenly they, David was talking to Richard in the pottery itself. And suddenly Neville came along and he said, there's something in that room. And Richard said, well, that room is my special, the ones I'm quite pleased with. Those are the expensive ones. And Neville said, well, I want to buy something there. And Richard said, what? And Neville said, I'd like to buy that, pointing to a large pot. And Richard said, that's my best pot. Did he? Yeah. And then Neville felt confident. 
And then he didn't stop. No. I got the impression that Neville had some very precise requirements about miking and how the orchestra should sound. Is that true? Yes. Oh, absolutely. And one of the old players came to see me yesterday and he was reminiscing about what Neville would do and that, that Neville would go into the control room and say, the sound isn't right, you've got to do something. And he said, would wait two hours until he was pleased it was right. And of course, the recording companies would get worried. They move the mics and they get crosser and crosser looking at their watches. But it always worked. So he must have had very good ears and very clear vision. But also, he must have had a very analytical sense as to how he was going to change the position of the microphone yes. and what difference that would make to the ensemble. I don't know how he knew. I just don't know. I don't think he knew how he knew. But he did love recording. Yes. Once, one day, Janet Baker was here to supper and she was talking, she was saying that, I don't know how conductors work because I have to connect with the audience. I have to be able to see them to get the message over. And Neville said, well, I forget the audience is there. I don't see them. But you see, that adds up because the group as a whole started without an audience. Yes, that's true. I never thought of that. Yes, you're quite right. And, and I think that, that comes out in the discs, you know? It probably does. He was just as happy making records. What kind of, kind of impact did that first disc have? Well, people did notice we did a Wigmore Hall quite soon after. And then the first, really virtually the first tour happened. And the Frenchman, called Monsieur Oudia, arrived suddenly, rang the doorbell and said, I wish to speak to Neville Mariner. And he came proposing a tour. French pianist Philippe Entremont. And Philippe was to play two Bach concertos in the first half and a big Mozart in the second half. So we thought this rather fun, playing round France in the bus, except it turned out to be December. Uh, we got to, had to have two horn players and two oboe players. This was new. Yes, they were from the LSO. And it was a terrible experience in one way for me. I'd never done a tour with musicians. The French hotels were abysmal. If you've ever stayed in a bad French hotel, the lighting doesn't work, and John Gray had to make cups of tea, so he was always fusing it with his electric gadget. <laughs> but the allowance for food was enormous. <laughs> Very French. So the two oboe players sat at the front of the coach all the time, reading the Red Michelin and telling us where to go for lunch when we... They'd converse with the coach driver, plan the best stop, and we ate like kings at lunchtime. Did you have a conductor at that stage? Oh, no. That was the whole point. Nobody was to conduct them. It was freedom from conductors. Yes. yes. No, they discussed it, and in this wonderful interview that did appear in print, 
The man says to Neville, well, how did it work out about the music? How did you discuss the style? Because Neville wanted a new style. And Neville said, well, first of all, the five of us, the five principals talk about it. Then everybody at rehearsal can have their say. And then we do it my way. <laughs> and that was from the beginning. Yes. But, really? you, you know, the whole thing really was born when Neville was invalided out of the army. Because having been wounded, he was put in first into a hospital. And then when he was a bit better, he was sent to a nursing home. And in this nursing home, by an act of God, he was in the next door bed to Thurston Dart. Now, quite a lot of people won't know Thurston Dart, but he was one of the great musicologists, stylists. Uh, he was professor at Cambridge of Music. And he had very strong ideas about technique and how English playing was sloppy. Nobody disciplined the violin, so they played mushily. And he had, I'm sure, great influence on Neville. And that translated into, into quite precise style. Exactly. And it, it was Thurston Dart who wanted a Baroque style. First they tried with those Corelli bows, those bent bows, but they didn't feel comfortable. And, and Neville said, well, look, we haven't really got a way to fake it. We can't do it for real. So we'll just try and do it through the style we play. A sort of cleanness, an attack. And that's what they aimed for. And I think it was different at the time, probably. Well, it was certainly picked up as so, wasn't yes. it, in the, in the reviews of the discs? Because were you performing much at the time? No. We, actually, there was a wonderful man in Germany, Hans Ulrich Schmidt, who was a music agent, just starting, young, but he loved the Academy, what he heard of them. And he was brave enough to take us on a tour. And the first thing he did was say, you'll have to change the name. It's too long on the poster. So Neville said, but, but it's our name. No, you will have to change it. So he called us the London Strings, which they hated because it sounded like Mantovani. <laughs> but they started the tour... And just then, we released the records on Handel, the first Handel three big records of Concerti Grossi. And Hansel Rick said, oh dear, I made a mistake. Your reputation is made by these recordings and you can be the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields, however big the poster has to be. <laughs> Embarrassments about such a name. I mean, it is a very odd name. I mean, people who live in London know what St. Martin in the Fields is, but what else did that mean? Well, that was Thurston Dart, actually. The vicar said, We'd like St. Martin's in your name. Now, you obviously are on the way, so we'd like St. Martin's. And Neville didn't want to be just the chamber orchestra of St. Martin's or something. They've played around with names. And then Bob Dart said, Look, in the 18th century, there were groups of like-minded people 
who met, who called themselves academies. There would be an academy for the doctors, an academy of literature. There was probably even an academy of coal merchants. And they met together, the men, and had, like a club. But they discussed serious subjects. Sure, they had a drink or two as well. But, and he said, well, you're people meeting together for pleasure to make music. So why not be the Academy of St. Martin in the field? And in the fields must have baffled quite uh, a few people. It baffled some Americans. There were some very funny reviews. There was a very lovely one from San Francisco said, gee, this cruel man, I think they're making those poor players out in the open air in that dreadful English weather. <laughs> so it did, but there are still people who come to the church saying, can we study? at the academy, how do we get in? So that was the first time the academy was used in this sort of context in the, yes. in the later years? Yes. So you set the style there, as you set the style in many things? Well, yes, because Chris Hogwood, if you remember, he then asked Neville if he could call his group the Academy of yes. Ancient Music. Yes. It was very flattering. But then the moment came, when did it happen that they eventually said, we are going to have to have somebody in the front waving our hands about. Well, gradually happened as the band got a bigger repertoire. If you get more, especially if you get more wind players, then you get trumpets. And then, gosh, we've got big now. We've got trombones. We've got the whole lot, you know. And then it was much more difficult to send the signals from the front desk. And there's a very famous moment when the recording people said, Neville... I think you ought to stand up and just give them some signals because they're lagging behind. So Neville stood up evidently. I wasn't there. And he stood up and he started tentatively waving at them. And Roger Lord, who was the oboe player, shouted out, Neville, for God's sake, either stand where we can see you or we can't see you. <laughs> you must have been able to chart when it happened because of when it appeared on the discs. Um, not but you don't chart success because then we weren't on royalties, so you've no idea how many sell. Really? No, it took quite some time. To... Neville got royalties after a time, and he said, I, I want the orchestra to have royalties. And the record companies all said, we don't give orchestras royalties. And Neville said, in that case, they can, they've got to have some of mine. Because... By that time, he was working in Los Angeles too, and he began to tell me I had to give up. He said, I, you make me too nervous. You always look so worried waiting for the telephone to bring bad news of a player who can't do it. And that's when, after 15 years, that, that I gave up then, and um, we paid Sylvia. So you were doing all the academy's accounts and their contracts yes. and all that? I did. I did the accounts and I, never, I'm no accountant. So after a bit, there was a very nice man called Mr Dunbar who looked after a lot of musicians. And he rang me up and he said, Molly, the tax man has noticed that quite a lot of money is going through everybody's account." which comes from the academy. I think I'd better see your books because I had to send out a form every year with everybody's tax thing. So I said, OK, and I posted off the books. And he rang me up and he said, no, your books. So I said, well, that's all I've got, the checkbook with the stubs, the paying-in book, and my booking book, which says how much everybody got. 
And he said over the phone, well, that's the purest form of accounting, one way that you could not possibly cheat the tax man. <laughs> <laughs> but you also act as, as the hostess, in May, um, of well, the, for the entire orchestra, really. It wasn't exactly a hostess. It was a nurse. It was a safety pin provider. It, but, you know, all the things. There was one with an ulcer who kept coming in the kitchen for a sandwich. But it was in here. In yes, this... being part of it. That's why it still feels like another family to mm. me. And I learned so much. I wasn't particularly musical, but I'd copy music. Really? Oh, that was terrible. Never once said to me, we can always tell which are your copies, Molly, because they're too tidy. <laughs> oh, really? Well, I was so meticulous about where the dots went, I was frightened to get it wrong. Then, of course, so Neville is established now because your repertoire is growing. You're going from, from the 17th century into the 18th century. And then moving up. Yes. Yes, big stuff. And was that a problem? No, I mean, that, that was, seemed a natural progression. And by that time, Neville was a conductor, you see. This, yes. this was, it was his stepping stone, really. But the Academy thought of him as, as belonging uh, to them. They, they didn't want him to be a conductor, no. no. And he just said, well, I don't play the violin the way I should now. I don't play it well enough, so I would engage myself. <laughs> so that was the end of the violin. Well, then, he's a modest man. He was a very modest man. Who chose the repertoire? Well, when Iona then was the concert mistress, she chose her own concerts. Recording companies, they chose theirs, and they certainly scraped the barrel. If you ever look at what the Academy recorded, it's amazing. I mean, D'Souza marches and... Extraordinary. Yeah. I bet you haven't got a copy of that one. No, I haven't. <laughs> I don't think I've got two. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have a favourite amongst... I mean, you would listen to them. Every performance, jolly or nearly, I would imagine. Um, no, you change, but there were one or two pieces. That the one that was actually the most moving, and, I, and it was for all of them, was for Claire Tenacht. Yeah. And that's coming out of the repertoire, isn't it? A long way. It is. Yes. And it, it, they played that so movingly. And the, Neville said, though, the best performance they ever gave was being uh, for radio. It was a concert abroad, and it was being done on the radio. And he said it would, they'd never played so well. He knew they all came off the stage absolutely wrung out. Yeah. And then the man from the radio came to him and said, I'm so sorry, we didn't get it because the microphone failed. No. Yes. I would have thought that Miss Morphosen was pretty well up. That was another story. It was amazing because they could not get it. Never got said more and more frustrated. They couldn't understand why it wasn't going properly, but they couldn't get it. And then he said, right, early lunch. And he said, and we're going to take more than an hour for lunch. We'll take two hours. And the record company were terribly worried because they, that cut their session to two hours. They went back and they did it in two takes. He had a great art of recording sessions. I used to sit there and I'd watch that clock. And I think, Neville, 
You've only got three minutes, never, and then he'd make a joke. I think, never shut up. It's now two and a quarter minutes. And they'd all be laughing, and then they'd pick it up, and it would work. They, of course, are all relatively small groups, but of the full orchestral repertoire, what, did, what was your favourite? You'll never believe it. It's a recording of Elgar's In the South. It's really? wonderful. It absolutely, it, to begin with, it blows your mind when it starts. The sound is just stunning. I'd never heard the piece at all, and it was just a filler on Elgar's first symphony. Really? Mm. Did Neville have favourites? Well, he loved that. He, he was very proud of that. Um, I think he got sick of being known as the Mozart conductor, but actually he always went back to it. Did he? Well, his very last concert in Padua was the three last Mozart symphonies. Was it really? Yes, I've always been so glad of that. Thanks to Sir David and Lady Mariner for sharing such wonderful stories ahead of the Academy of St Martin in the Field's 60th anniversary celebrations in the 2019-2020 season. To find out more about the Academy, view or upcoming tour dates or support the orchestra's work by joining the Academy Friends, please visit asmf.org. That's about all we have time for, but as usual, we'd love to hear your thoughts on what you've heard. So please do get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram using the hashtags ASMFpodcast. Thanks for listening. Listener.